this this bullshit that you think is so important, you can just kiss all that goodbye. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Welcome to episode eight of uh, Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host Jamie, and this is Peter. And today we have uh, Dayton Allen from Sithfire Creations uh, here to discuss everything alien as it regards what he does. And uh, thank you so much, Dayton, for coming on the show. Um, I've been looking at your stuff for a long time, and uh, you are a genius of your craft. Um, That's awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, I'll just start out with... uh, some questions that I have for you and uh, then, you know, Pete, you can ask him whatever and we'll just kind of go from there. But I, you know, just kind of a basic question. How, how, how did this all start for you? Like what about the alien film got you so excited that you make essentially badass toys <laughs> that recreate the, the film? Yeah. Um, you know, to be honest with you about when it comes to alien, um, you know, I was in a podcast uh, earlier last year and, it, the question was asked to me, when was my first experience with Alien? And uh, I, honestly, off the top of my head, I, I try to think back, and it was I, I thought maybe it was when I was in uh, uh, elementary school, and I, I wandered into a room, and I thought I saw the chestburster or something like that. So I, you know, I didn't really have time to think about it. But when I, after that question was asked, I really thought back on when was the first time that I was ever exposed to Alien, and the first time I ever saw it, I believe, was about 87 or 88, and it was Aliens. Yeah. It was an alien. And I wandered into, I guess it was home box office or something like that. That was, you know, that's HBO for your kids kids out there. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I wandered into the room, and the first thing I saw, the first thing that I, I saw from alien, any alien film was when Rip when Ripley and Bishop were standing there and all of a sudden Bishop started puking and he got ripped in half by the queen. And I had no idea who, what a robot, what, what the uh, robot was, what the white milk was. I didn't know. All I knew is this guy was getting ripped apart and I was watching it and it just blew my mind. And I ran out. I, I didn't run out of the room. I just calmly turned around and walked out of the room. That's awesome. And it freaked me out and it stayed in my head ever since then. Now, the strangest thing is after that, aliens sort of just basically existed in it, in it for its namesake. It was alien to me. I go into comic stores because I was big in X-Men and Star Wars and stuff, comics. And Dark Horse would have their dark, you know, the, the alien series on the, you know, you got to think this is 1989, 88, 89, 90 going up. And I would look at them and say, boy, man, that is some terrifying stuff right there. Man. Yeah. I don't want to really get into that. I just don't. I don't because that, that, I keep thinking back. Now, at this point, mind you, I haven't watched Aliens all the way through. I've only watched it in little segments. And the other scene that really got to me was when Pharaoh died, when coming back to rescue the, the, um, the, the crew that was left from the, uh, from the uh, initial uh, Marine um, initiation with the uh with the hive yeah so uh you know pharaoh died with that alien creeping up behind her and the door opens and all of a sudden it shines its teeth i did it for me i said oh god man what, what is this yeah so alien was really foreign to me late in my life and let me tell you honestly the first time i watched alien the 79 film was my junior year in high school really okay 
which was quite a long time ago, but not really that long a time ago. But, you know, you got to think that's probably 91, 1991. So that was my first time watching Alien. And it was because of Blade Runner. Because I didn't understand the darkness of the direction and all that stuff, what was going on. I didn't understand Ridley's way of filming and stuff. So when I watched clips of Alien, it was really dark and just just unnerving to me. Yeah. I just I was sitting there going, boy, man, I was all into Star Wars and the Star Trek and all this you know, great galactic battle stuff. I was still hooked on that stuff and Marvel and all that stuff. So I never really wanted to get into the dark. I wouldn't, didn't shun it, but I was sitting there going, boy, this is really bad. It wasn't until I watched Blade Runner and fell in love with it, and I, I mean, I absolutely fell in love with it. That I that I said, "Boy, Ridley Scott's a genius. I need to go back and see Alien." And when I went, sat there in that one one night, that back there and watched Alien, and it just blew my mind. And then at that point, it just stuck in there as an artist. I, I didn't know what to do with it, and you know, Blade Runner was in there. And you have all the Star Wars films, The New Hope. The first Star Wars film was stuck in my head. All this stuff started just going around in my head for a long time. And, you know, it wasn't until, you know, I, I went to college and got a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Graphic Design because I, I just like design work and I like illustration and stuff like that. And I found that one of the things I love the most is sculpture. But there's really not a lot of, at the time when I was there, I was never educated correctly in finding out the jobs that sculpture is, is, can be utilized, unfortunately, because if I knew that you can sculpt action figures, I would have gone into, I would have pursued that type of, of a career move, but I didn't know that. All I was interested in at that time was classical sculpture and stuff like that, so that's what I did for a while as a, as, you know, as a side job. Gotcha. Uh, you know, for commission stuff. Uh, back in around, uh, around, 1995, 96, 97, I started getting into customizing and uh, customizing action figures. So I was a collector. I, I liked collecting uh, movie memorabilia, and I was a big Star Trek fan, so I collected Playmate Star Trek figures. And then when uh, Power of the Force Star Wars came out, of course, I started collecting those again. It was my chance to rebuild the collection I sold when I was a kid. So, uh, you know, then I saw some guys online that were repainting stormtroopers and all this other stuff from the power of, I said, boy, that's pretty fun. You know, that's a nice little hobby to get into past the time. So one of my first customs was taking a white little stormtrooper, power of the force stormtrooper and painting it black as the black hole troopers that you saw. Dark horse released a comic that had uh, stormtroopers clad in black armor. I can't remember if they were called black hole troopers or uh, dark troopers or something like that. But I wanted like a couple of those, so I did a repaint of those. Okay. And then one thing led to another, and I started getting really heavily into Star Wars customization. And it wasn't until about 2005 when I got on rebelscum.com and started posting some of my work that uh, I took the name, the screen name Sithfire30 and started finding that. There's a lot of talent out there, and I was pretty good at it. And I was trying to find out I, was, I, I can do this, you know, I can enjoy it. Yeah. So, uh, up until that time, you know, up until about 2012, I was <clears throat> mainly just doing Star Wars customs and stuff like that. I still do. I, I, I've sort of slacked off a lot from Star Wars because of all the uncertainty going around these days. But um, about 2012, I sat down about 2011. I sat down with one of my friends. We watched Alien again. I said, "Man," and I looked back. I said, "You know, 
Kenner was going to release a set of alien figures, man. It would have been awesome if they did that. And one of the guys just said, sheesh, why don't you do some customs of that? I said, boy, I don't know if I can, that alien is something else to try to make. I don't know if I can, I can do that type of thing. And I was just getting into molding and casting Yeah. at that point. And I just discovered a new product called Aves Fix It Sculpt. I was about two years into working with this two-part epoxy. So you could create things that would cure at rock hard level and you can mold and cast and replicate into plastic. And you can literally make an action figure. Uh, that that would that had a store bought quality to it. So, at that point, I went ahead and just started, and uh, I said I'll just do the core crew, and I'll save the alien to later when I get a little bit more experience on my belt because I need to do a lot of research in that creature because so many people have done it. There's so many different interpretations of how it looks. Because honestly, unless you go back and really research alien and, and it, all the uh, all the builds that Giger did. You will, you may find yourself, you know, doing sculpts of an artist rendition or or yeah. something else. You, you may not get the true look of the alien as as you would if you did a lot of research for it. So, I spent some time researching it, and you know, one thing led to another, and now I'm what steep three years into this. You know, I started doing dioramas four years into it actually, um, doing this with other stuff like Blade Runner customization and and and. Star Wars. I still do Star Wars stuff, not as much as I should, but you know, I, I have a lot of fans out there that want me to get into it more, and I, I will. I'm going to. Well, but, uh, now with the new Star Wars, and I was, I got to see uh, when I was at Celebration last week. I got to go into the Force Awakens exhibit where they have oh, yeah? all these costumes and props and everything. These oh, costumes yeah. that they've designed are incredible, incredible. Awesome. So. Just uh, wait. Well, they were going for more of the original trilogy look. It seems like. Yeah, they do. I mean, they, they you know, there's the new like trooper where he he's got like an incinerator. Um, yeah. I'm sure you've probably seen photos floating around, but um, oh yeah. And then like he's yeah. got like the chrome, like black chrome armor. No, no, it's it's all white. It's like a snow trooper, but it's got like uh, a white incinerator that's plugged into the back of him. It's amazing, and that's you know oh, that is dope. It is, yeah. and I, just seeing the full thing i mean there's a lot on the horizon for star wars that kind of is going to reinvigorate uh the fan community and the creative fan community for sure what i really like about it is that the creators of this film have gone back to ralph McQuarrie's original um um, concept work and have derived these these ideas from him and they're making it they're bringing it to life so that 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 flame the trooper the uh the snowtrooper. If you look back on some of his early concept work, it, it's taken literally from those concept art, which is great. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. So you get a little bit of a of a past past idea brought into the future of the Star Wars universe, which is great. Yeah, it's awesome stuff. So uh, I know you know I found you through Wayland Yutani, but actually the Wayland Yutani Bulletin. But I actually really more found you through Pete. Um, and he was like, you know, you should look at this guy's stuff. And then I saw your stuff, and then I saw that you you had a page, um, and you've got like five thousand likes for your page. I mean, you've there, got, yeah, you've almost, yeah, like forty eight hundred something. You've got a really, really big following. I mean, what do you? And I think I saw somewhere that you said you don't sell your the things that you make. Like, how did that? How did all that begin? Where you have a following, and you you know, you've got thousands of people who are watching what you do. Like, how did how did that kind of come about? I was doing a lot of posting on Facebook 
uh, or I was doing a lot of posting on on different types of forums like Rebel Scum and Imperial Shipyards and uh, Yakface.com for all my Star Wars work. So every time I'd finish a post or, or finish a figure, I'd have to go and post it on all of these different forum sites, and then have to go back and uh, figure out uh, if there's any questions asked or anything. And sometimes I'd miss a lot of questions asked on these forums because I couldn't just go back and stay on the forums all day. I had other things to do. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out a way if I can consolidate that into one spot and then everybody can come there. So eventually uh, I decided just to open up. I had a personal page already on Facebook and then I decided to go ahead and uh, open up a page for Sith Fire 30 Creations. And, and from there it started off really small and, Boy, I pimped my work out like crazy, man. I was all over the place. Anytime I'd, I'd post something, I'd share it on every Facebook page I can figure oh, wow. uh, that would entertain it. Like uh, any Star Wars page I can figure it on Facebook, you know, Star Wars Insider and stuff. Things didn't really uh, uh, blow up for me at that point until about a year after I had my Facebook page that um, the media um, – person in charge of media at Lucasfilm at the time named Bonnie Burton, who now works at CNET, uh, got hold of my work and she contacted me and she said, I want to put you in the uh, Star Wars Insider. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And I thought, I thought to myself, it'll be a little blurb that maybe a couple pictures and I just sent them a whole bunch of stuff. I said, pick whatever you want. And, uh, you know, and I, and I, she conducted a little interview with me. Uh, you know, I typed all my stuff up and sent it to her. I had no idea what was about to happen when I went and bought that issue. Uh, it's I can't remember the name of the issue. I got like forty copies of it, but <laughs> somewhere <laughs> yeah. around here. But uh, uh, I went to the uh, it was Barnes and Noble, and I went and got sat down and got it and would look through the pages, getting ready. It was a two page spread. Wow. That of awesome. my work right there with all my contact information, all that stuff, and all kinds of pictures of my work and my entire interview. And that's what started the attention being brought to my Facebook page. And then all of a sudden I started, I guess you can consider it a soft viral. It started, people started contacting me and saying, boy, I like you work and all that stuff. And other cu- customizers asked me questions. Stuff that was wonderful. And, uh, at that point, you know, if it wasn't for Bonnie, that's why I'm internally grateful to Bonnie Burton. She she helped me get moving on this and uh, allow me to enjoy the hobby so much more for sharing it with other people and uh, getting to know other hobbyists that are super talented and learning a lot from them as well. So I give her a lot of credit for that and Lucasfilm a lot of credit for allowing that, you know, some little guy like me to be in their magazine it was a real honor and, uh, you know. That's how that's how it started blowing up, and then ever since then, a lot of people ask, "Well, you don't sell anything." Well, yeah, I, I think um, when I first messaged you on Facebook, your personal page, I asked if you sold anything, and you said, "No, not right now. Probably not in the near future." But if yeah. I ever decide to sell anything, you let me know. Yeah, and and I will. And, and, and the fact is, um, up until the point when everybody started asking those questions, it was just more of just a hobby page. You know, here's my hobby. Here's what I do. You know, I still well, that's, like that's essentially what we do as well. You know, it's yeah. it's a hobby page. We do a yeah. podcast and we do yeah. it for the fans. Yeah, and that's basically what I do. You know, just to help inspire. And if you notice, my page is not just about my work; it's about 
my uh, my favorite things, you know, whether it be action figures and Marvel and Star Wars and all that stuff. I try to just keep it open to everybody, you know, that that's joined my page because I have more Star Wars fans that aren't alien fans. I have alien fans that aren't Star Wars fans. So keeping that balance going, you know, it's great. But uh, it's it was yeah that question was brought to me why didn't I sell things? Well, it, it was just because there's a lot of licensing problems involved with it. I've told people that uh, several times because I have fans that are actual employees of 20th Century Fox. Okay. So, and one of them is in licensing. So I am very careful not to step on anybody's toes. Got it. And uh, so, you know, and they watch you like a hawk. If you, if you're doing stuff and there's a popularity brought to it or attention brought to it, I guarantee you somebody is watching. And, uh, whether it become it, whether it becomes kits or something like that, uh, you, you just have to be very careful with it. At this point, I, I never, I don't have the manpower, number one, nor the time or the money to be able to produce the kits that I want to produce successfully. And number three, the second thing is, I don't have the backing of these people that encourage me to do it. Yeah, I, I, I just, I've built bridges I don't want to burn. At this point, understandable, and, uh, absolutely. I encourage everybody that's creative that that creates something to post it to my page because I I want other people to see it, you know, and I want other people. If you I am me, uh, an image that you'd like to share, do so because I'll try to I'll try to share it as well. I want I want to share other people's work as well on my page. There's a lot of talent out there. It's incredible. Have you ever been approached by like uh, NECA or Hot Toys to work for them? Not hot top toys and NECA. Randy knows me at NECA. I've shared a lot of my work with him and he thinks it's awesome. I just don't think that there's uh I, I think they they got their their group of talent there and that's amazing talent. And uh, I think, you know, it's kinda like a troop. And they unless I've not been offered anything, no. But boy, I, I've been hinting to them every once in a while on the Twitter, hey, opening a comes up you know where my or where to find me you know you can look me up because i love to work for something like somebody like that hot toys who to be honest i mean considering a lot of your work rivals hot toys or coyote and quality you know i I think that'd be a good oh well i mean it's true like just looking at your figures and your dioramas it's like you could sell that and make easily, like, if it was, like, a 12-inch figure, you could probably make Hot Toys money off of one of those. Yeah. I, you know, I've, uh, I did try to rival Hot Toys one time. I, I, I actually did a uh, 118th scale. It's still a work in progress. I got to finish it. A Bane from the Dark Knight. Yeah. And I did a side-by-side shot of the 12-inch head sculpt from Hot Toys with my 118th scale <laughs> shot of my Bane and posted it. And I sent it to them, and they they sent me an email saying "quite impressive." That was the only two words they said in the email to me: "quite impressive." Awesome, but uh, well, it's good enough for me. <laughs> they're uh, they're Asian, aren't they? Hot Toys. Yeah, they're over in Hong Kong. Okay, yes. and I've I've actually know a couple of the artists. I'm I'm on friends with some of the sculptors, and they're extremely talented. They 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 still do a lot of their. Sculpting, I believe, traditionally, they don't 3D print. I'm not downing 3D printing. 
fun is saying they do a lot of their sculptures um, traditionally through uh, clay and, and, and wax and stuff like that, which is to be appreciated. That's why I never really down them on their likenesses. I actually wasn't even aware that uh, uh, toy places or you know action figure places 3D print their stuff. I think Hasbro is doing a lot more 3D printing these days than they are actually hand sculpting. That's they're a little disappointing. Working. Yeah, they're still doing a lot of stuff in wax, and they, you know, I, I a couple of guys over at Hasbro, I've seen them, you know, in the last several years at Celebration or Star Wars Celebration. Last time I watched them, and they were still doing traditional sculpting, but some of the more intricate stuff like capes and and, and cowls and and costumes and stuff like that were being 3d printed and it's a necessary evil it, it has to be done it saves money number one saves time you don't have to have as much talent on staff um you can create more domestically than sending it overseas to be replicated um there's a lot of advantages to 3d printing and but i, I still think i'm not going to get on a tangent on 3d printing but i do respect those that still uh keep traditional sculpting in their and you know and with their uh, companies and i think all of them do to one degree to another you know I, I think all of them do but hot toys and neca i think still are doing a lot more traditional sculpting with their work that's why you'll never hear me really diss their their likenesses and stuff like that because it's all hand done and it's through the eye of the beholder what they see and they sculpt may be different from what you see if you were to sculpt it. So everybody has their own interpretation. And yeah, I might knock them on engineering and stuff like that. But Hasbro does some ridiculous stuff with their work sometimes. And I wonder if their marketing meetings, do they ever just notice these things? Because I'm not, not going to get on a tangent, but for example, their most recent release is, is Leia. It's a six-inch Leia Bush outfit, the uh, bounty hunter. Yeah. Well, the first series that came out with Slave Leia, if you put these two six-inch figures together, the Slave Leia is so out of scale to the Bush uh, bounty hunter disguised Leia. Slave Leia looks like a little sister. Yeah, and that's not supposed to. It's not that, those things shouldn't happen. I saw your photos of that actually on your page yeah. because yeah. Uh, the the bounty hunter Leia, her legs look weird and like warped and out of yeah. just strange. And those, those things shouldn't happen, and uh, that's my biggest complaints. So you know, I, I get my little quirks on that, and and uh, talk down about companies that are doing that type of thing. But you know, it, it happens, I guess. I just, I really enjoy what they do, and I like the creative side of everything. That's why I, I'll I'll always try to post you know prototypes and stuff like that because it's really cool to watch the evolution of some of these things. And the Asian market right now is just incredible what they're doing right now with the Star Wars license, what they do with Alien. Um, I really think thinking in the next several years we may actually see something from the Asian markets of a line of alien figures or something like that. I just think I have a gut feeling that that's going to come in time. Someone's going to pick it up over there. I don't know as each figure arts or somebody's going to pick it up and do it. You're talking like in comparison to the Revoltech figures, something yeah, like that. Some, something like not really Revoltech. Uh, I think Revoltech is more stylized type figures. They, they bend on more of the anime look to me and I really like it. I do like it a lot, but uh, I'm, I'm thinking more of a 
SH Figure Arts or Figma, if you've seen those uh, Asian uh, market figures, they're brilliant looking. I mean, uh, especially the ones that they take from anime. It looks like they literally, Figma, looks like they take it straight out of the animated film and they or show and they made it to an action figure. It's They're beautiful. Interesting. I don't collect them, but I just love to look at them. They do such a good job. Now, what do you do for work? Uh, and like, do you do anything that is related to what you your hobbies are? Um, I'm a graphic designer for a manufacturing company uh, here in uh, Tampa, St. Pete. And uh, yeah, it's funny. Uh, Dayton actually lives about an hour north of me. Okay. Really? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm in uh, the Bradenton, Sarasota area. Oh, crazy! Crazy. <laughs> I didn't know that, man. Um, you probably mentioned to me before, and I probably didn't didn't think about it. But uh, yeah, it's it, I'm I do uh, my company works in both craft goods and uh, installation tile. So those are two diverse um, types of uh, companies, you know, or two different types of merchandise that I get to uh, do design work for. So uh, does it have anything that influences my art at home or my hobby? Not really. It keeps me in the creative mode, though. So I think that it's nice to go to work and be creative, turn around, come home, be creative. So I'm always thinking and being creative about something. So, yeah, it influences a little bit, I I think, but not heavily. Pop culture, comic book stores and stuff like that influence me much more yeah is it difficult to you know i know as a working you know i work i you know i have a job that pays my bills but sometimes you know you have that that push and pull of oh i'm home from work and i don't have any energy to be creative how do you how do you do that sometimes it's the opposite and i hope my boss never hears but sometimes i'll be (laughs) too inspired on my hobby work to really get into my nine to five job yeah and I'll just say, how am I going to get through this day? Because I'm too interested in doing what I'm doing at home right now. My that the sculpts on the on the uh, table, I need to get done. So well, I, I sometimes call can, in. Uh, I think we can all relate. Um, yeah. I mean, we all work like nine to five jobs, probably. Yeah. Uh, and it's just like as a filmmaker, and you know, just with the podcast and just all the different hobbies that I have, music and all that. It's it's. Uh, it's definitely off-putting to have to go to work and be like, oh, I don't want to be here. Yeah. You want to go home and want to do what inspires you, not be stifled. But, you know, it, it is difficult, though, to, to come home after a, a, a day's work and try to get to the mode again for uh, – because I only have a few hours a day to work on it. And, you know, I got a life. There's other things I got to get done. There's there's family. There's, there's, there's stuff to do you know, outside of work and hobbies and stuff. But – it's kind of like a, if I don't have a few hours to do it each day, I get irritated. You know, it's kind of like it's a creative itch that you have to do something each day, a little yeah. something. So, you know, I come home and I'll, you know, most of my – during the week, it's mostly come home, fix dinner, uh, sit down and probably, you know, watch some news or watch some TV for a little bit or whatever – and then when I get time, probably around nine, ten o'clock, I'll start working till about probably midnight, one o'clock, and then get to bed and get up in the morning, and go do the whole thing over again. So, got a little bit of the night out going, just a little bit, but it's it's not stressful. It's enjoyable. It's calming. And because well, uh, you're doing what you love, you know, you're not really yeah. working. 
Yeah, and there's, there's, there's no so. timelines. There's no deadlines. You know, they don't have anybody breathing down your neck. One of the other reasons why I, I haven't gotten back into commissions, I do want to get back in commissions someday, but I had a bad experience with commission work. And it's just, you know, I'm not going to get into that whole tangent, but there's there's clients sometimes that just don't understand that you have a life and you can't get things done in the time that they want it sometimes. And sometimes they jump the time, time uh, that you need to get it done. They advance the, the uh, deadlines on you and stuff like that. So I got a commission work several years ago. It was several years ago. And uh, I may get back into it again. But right now I'm enjoying just doing this work right now, this hobby work right now. And, you know, I want to get the alien work done first before I venture into possible commission work again. And very limited, but, you know, it, it would be nice. I think there's enough people that know my work now that would enjoy me working with them and, and doing something original, one-of-a-kind for them, and uh, give me the time that I need to do it. And, you know, and so... I, I think there's that, that saying that goes, um, if you enjoy, like, the work that somebody does, then just love it and then leave them be. Don't, like, push them. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, that's just how I, I feel about it. And I think that... Uh, it's eventually going to come. I'll, 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 I'll finally get back into commission work again. So anybody that's listening, it's coming. Just just give it some time. I'll announce it on my Facebook page, of course. My next question then would be, what's your um, long-term goal with the alien stuff that you're doing? I mean, I've seen like many different scenes. I see like parts of the ship and... I see the characters, and then I see like several different iterations of the alien creature, and maybe three or four different iterations of like Ripley or Amanda Ripley or Dallas. What do you? What's your long-term goal for that? Well, a lot of that's OCD. I just, I just can't. I can't. I have to do it all, you know. Yeah. But uh, my long-term goal for this is to eventually have a uh, modular Nostromo interior. I want to have a bridge. I want to have the galley. I want to have um, a couple corridors, um, a couple of samples. Of, I want to do the medical bay. I want to have deck A almost pretty much complete. I want to do a complete deck A of the Nostromo. Deck B and deck C, just sections, little sections of it for diorama. Yeah. That would be a pretty daunting task if we're going to be honest here, but I, yeah. I know you can make it look badass. Yeah, it, it's it, it's... Some of it I've already put together, and it's quite large. I have a kitchen table that's pretty big, and it takes up the the, the bridge itself. So far, it takes up almost a kitchen table. So it's something that would, if if it ever gets on display, once it's painted and done and everything, it would take it would it would be like in a convention center or or you know some sort of show. It would have to be on a you know, that type of uh, venue. You know, Monster Palooza or something like that would be awesome to show it off. You know, I always think about stuff like that. But uh, as far as, and it's modular, it can be broken down and be, you know, put up and, and, and stored. It's just something that got into my blood and it's something that I need to work on and get out of my system. It's like any other artist. You have something that you want to do and you're not satisfied until you get out of your system. Well, this just happened. I'm, 
I'm in awe of, of the Nostromo tech. It's just the way that uh, Ron Cobb and Roger Christian and all the, the all those designers got together and created something that looked real. Yeah, we are function. very much huge fans of yeah. the design aesthetic of the Nostromo here. Oh, I yeah. think we did like a whole podcast about it. Yeah, all the the entire ship feels like it would be a functional vessel. It, there's no trickery to, that I can watch and, and think, oh, yeah, that's that's a that's a load and nothing would look, you know, too clean or too pretty, you know. It's, yeah. it's basically a, a living heart ship. Yeah, know, it's wow. so real that it doesn't even distract you, you know. Like, yeah. a lot of times in science fiction films, it's so sci-fi that it's like, it doesn't seem realistic. Um, yeah. Whereas the Nostromo and, you know, certainly... Me, like Pete is saying, we've talked about this, but it's just so well designed that it doesn't even draw attention to itself. I mean, even, but it does in some ways too, because we're talking about it and how beautiful it is and how um, almost, it's almost like a, um, what's the word? It's almost like a cathedral in some ways. It's yeah. very, there's almost like columns, almost like in Blade Runner. You see very similar, um, similar uh, design patterns in Blade Runner too, which again, uh, make you just you're, you're, uh, for myself. I'm in awe of it. It, it. I can't get enough of it. Yeah. Um. To me, it's like a it's the own separate character. Nostromo is a character in the film. It's like a looming being that all these people are living in, and you know the alien has decided to make its home out of it. And it's it's it makes the creep factor even much more intense because of this ma- massive. Uh, area that you have to live in you know where can we be hiding and stuff like that really brings a fear factor on and it's it's just it's just to me everything is patterned itself after it since then in science fiction you know uh i think when roger christian did the million falcon and took that idea and brought it to the nostromo you know it, it those two things those two those two ships help influence everything else that you see after that yeah um well, Star Wars very much prided itself on the lived-in look. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it was the uh, bonus material in the original trilogy DVD set from 04. That documentary talks about how George Lucas didn't want the Buck Rogers look of the future. He wanted the world to be believable and lived-in, and people used everything that was in it. Yeah. And Alien very much captures that, I think. Yeah. And what's so funny is that they won't speak of it, but it was also influenced heavily on their budget as well. You know, they they, they couldn't make these big, fancy, uh, enormous coliseums of smooth edges and stuff. So they had to say, listen, you know, we got to go buy some junk and just lay it out and hope for the best, you know. And it was the best. Yeah, it was. That was perfect. Well, uh, I sometimes still to this day think that low budget, the, the, the less money you have, the more it's going to force you to be creative. What's and that think, saying? This necessity is the mother of invention? Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, that speaks to Star Wars, Blade Runner, uh, uh, Alien, for sure. They don't, they have to, because they, they don't have all the money in the world, they have to actually come up with something that's u- unique and original. And uh, I think some of the best art and the best art comes from that that kind of thing. Yeah, when you're pushed to the edge and you have to think of a way to pull this off, you'll just 
brilliant things. You just are forced to. And I think that they were forced to come up with these ideas that maybe when they filmed it, they're going, boy, I don't know. Is this going to, we're, we're going to pull this off or not? And then all of a sudden, boom, it, it's there. And it, it was a it was a brilliant movie. It looks gorgeous. Yeah. You know, all well, I think uh, going along with, uh, you mentioned the very low budget for sets on Star Wars and Alien. I think it was because they, they did not anticipate either of those films being a big success. Yeah, Star Wars, you know, science fiction back then was like, you know, that's like, uh, you know, fun stuff, you know, that's like B-movie stuff, you know, we're just going to throw you a little bit of money and that's it. But yeah, they hit on, they hit on themes that people just magnetized to, it just, these were driven to. So, you know, after that, it just influenced everything else. Now, Dayton, my question for you is, uh, you know, we were talking a lot about Alien and, uh, of course, the, the, the design aesthetic. And um, I want—I have some more kind of maybe philosophical questions. But in terms of design, uh, like with Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, are, do any of those films in, in terms of design or whatever capture you like Alien captures you? Um, I, I, I like how um, Alien 3 went back and tried to recapture the look of Alien there's a lot of themes in, in Alien 3 that went back to the original Alien, that uh, dark space where the monster might be hiding type yeah. idea. Yeah. The the dirt, the grime, the... Psychological usual, aspects. Yeah. It, the, the the way of not being able to get out. You know, the, the, this, this claustrophobic look. James Cameron brought the more... The more industrial, um, military type look to aliens, which I thought was appropriate, and and in, in its own way inspires me because I really like that industrial look. I like the idea that of uh, the semi clean corridors that they would go through that looked like they weren't even touched. Where are all the people at? This place, you know, some of these corridors look like they, you know, they barricaded it in some spots, and some spots was absolutely untouched. You know. But I like the look of the corridors and aliens. I like the look of the uh, the military gear and all that stuff was believable. It, it was very believable and stuff like that. So that's also an influence. You know, my for, my next set of figures I'm gearing up for is going to be based in aliens. So it's it's something I'm trying to get my mind set on right now. I'm building some some uh, um, reference books on all the stuff I can find on aliens. I've had a couple of friends that actually did some work on aliens that are sending me some stuff, which is really nice, you know, reference material. Uh, Before we get um, too off track, I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, that that reminds me, um, Charles Lippincott is an excellent resource for Star Wars and alien uh, set pictures. He doesn't have the highest resolution pictures, but he does certainly have some great stories and it helps your mind paint the picture. Well, Charles, Charles is very familiar with my work, and we've talked several times. And uh, he's actually mentioned me in a couple of his posts as you being the, uh, I think, what was it, the, the uh, crazy alien guy or something? <laughs> 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 but uh, building the ship and building the managers and stuff. So he's familiar with my work. I've shown my appreciation to him several times about the great stuff he posts. Oh, I, I mean, really hope he puts out that uh, Bob Penn book, the alien yeah. book. I told, yeah, I, I mean, I saw him saying that, and unfortunately, somebody tried to scan in and 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 you know violate trust a little bit that he's been posting, and I said, please don't, don't stop, you know, 
just just publish it in a book and copyright it, and then I'd be I'd, I'd take care of that. But don't stop posting, please, because I, I live for these updates that you're doing. Because <laughs> uh, a lot of my more more recent work has been influenced a lot about the images posted, even the Bob Penn uh, small image images, the clips that he's posted. You can zoom in enough to get some detail, and so that's perfect for me. I don't need to print out anything or anything like that. I just need to get pretty close in, you know. Yeah, but he's he's, he's a great a resource. resource. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so that kind of brings up my next question: as far as your resources and references go, when you do your dioramas and your figures, uh, what do you really? pour into when you look for a reference like say you want to look at a computer panel or something what would be the best way because i've had good luck with the print material and prop summit and things of that nature yeah rpf prop summit uh those are very valuable resources um i've got a, a majority of my my images from them um others are just going through you know talking to uh People that worked in Alien, uh, I try to get in touch with people like uh, I've been in touch with Dennis Lowe several times, uh, who worked in Alien and Aliens. Uh, he's pointed me in directions of who to talk to and what images to look for and, and where to you know look for them. Um, I do a lot of screen captures from the film. Uh, you know, sometimes that comes in very handy. Um, Dennis Lowe did a. A series of documentaries, and he, his latest one. If you ever go to his site, I can't think of it. Just type in Dennis Lowe Alien Makers in Google. Yeah, I have all of his documentaries. In my oh, computer. okay. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 he's done a. If you go through there, there's a lot of screen captures you get from just just some of the images he shared from the people that work on the on the set. You know, that took pictures when they were there. So I, I get a lot of resources from him. Um, from those documentaries, um, doing a lot of Google searches. You never know, there might be one little image that somebody posted that said, hey, you know, I got this from a friend, from a friend. Very rare image. It might be low res, but it's just enough to, to solve a mystery for me. Um, you know, and, and then I ask questions on Facebook and on forums about, you know, certain people there's some very talented blueprinters out there people that make blueprints and specs of the shelf right now they they're not building dioramas but they're literally building the build out you know in, in blueprint form and that helps out a lot too so I, I look for that what do you think uh what do you think it is i know we're talking about a lot of kind of peripheral things in terms of design aesthetics uh but there's something more about alien and the alien saga obviously particularly alien that it draws people what do you, what is that for you it's the reality of not, not just the alien it, the alien is its own separate it's the fear it's the uh, you know it's the unknown but the idea of waking up on a ship from a sleep and getting dressed and eating breakfast and you know, getting into your cockpit and checking on the weather or checking on the radar and stuff like that. That's stuff what people do every day, you know, when they go to the job, they get in their truck, they go, you know, or they go and they get in a car and they go to work. And I think that it brought a lot of true life 
into a what was once before very fantasy, fantastical. It brought a real edge, real life edge to it. You have a bunch of employees that, you know, they kind of like each other. They get along with each other because well, they're, paid they're paid and they have to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of them might have relationships. Others don't. You know, it's very realistic to what you do when you go to work every day. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think people are drawn to that. Then they're also drawn to the idea of the fascination of being able to watch in the safety of their home or in the theater of a situation in which you can't escape. Uh, there's no escaping this alien as a, at, at, you know, as a group, you know, cause the lifeboat is only going to carry what two people, you know, it's, it's, you are, you're bound to that ship to try to figure out how to get out of this situation. It's fascinating to people. It's, it's exhilarating. Yeah, to watch it, the uncomfortable uh, feelings you also be enjoyed. The carnal nature we kind of like those things for some reason, as long as we're not directly involved. It's it's it, it kind of gets you into that feeling of being scared. That's it's a good scare. Yeah, it, you know, it, it it some of these horror movies these days try too hard. They try to be too gory, too too in your face, and that's not scary to me. I don't. I, it's what you don't see that. That scares me, and I think that that's what people appreciate these films so much. And or like the movie, like Aliens, it, ha- it captured on that a little bit, but it was more of an action adventure type thing. But it, like, like um, John Hurt said one time when they were interviewing, he said the other films are like action adventure films. Uh, Aliens more psychological, more of a thriller more of a, a horror film than more or less. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's an original. It, it hasn't ever been replicated to me. I've not seen a film that's been able to get me that wound up when watching it. The way it was filmed, its stylization, its, its acting ability, the actors, the talent behind the screen, in front of the screen. You don't get that in horror films these days. You don't. You haven't gotten it in a long time. Yeah, I think seventies. The seventies was the height of you know, early eighties, late seventies. Just brilliance in horror during that time. Yeah, the realness is something that really uh, uh, attracts me to Alien and Aliens. Um, just their reactions, the crew of the Nostromo, their reactions to everything and their discussions. They was were yeah. bona fide real people. Um, yeah. trying to it's figure really out. We had uh, Yafit pick on Sigourney the entire time and he felt bad and, and all that. So there was genuine interaction on and off set. Yeah, and the writing the writing was really good too. The writing was just phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Um, Great Although most of it was ad lib. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure, and I know you know me and Pete have discussed this before, but just in terms of uh, uh, Veronica Cartwright's relationship, her tension between Veronica Cartwright and Rip and uh, Sigourney Weaver was something that Ridley Scott kind of pushed. Um, So they weren't like this kind of sisterhood. They were like, "No, you bitch," or whatever. Um, Yeah. But it's really, really, really because uh, Veronica was originally supposed to be Ripley, and then the first day filming, you're like, "Yeah, no." Well, actually, uh, from what I heard, or what the interview I read or saw, Veronica Cartwright said that she was going to try out for Ripley, and then uh, 
they had told her it had already been cast. And so they said that there's another part that she should try out for. And she begrudgingly tried out for it, and they gave it to her, which was, of course, Lambert. Um, yeah, which was perfect for her. She yeah. did so well. Yeah. I mean, that scene of her end uh, at the when the alien killed Parker and Lambert, her expressions just freaked me out. I just it, It's believable to me. And uh, she did it so well. She's perfect for the part. Absolutely. No, well, it's kind of getting into. Uh, I, I posted a, a, a banner for our, our, you know, the podcast, and it, it's a picture of Ripley. And I posted all these, you know, and in this banner, I posted this, or I put these words saying, uh, "lunatic, whistleblower, woman, liar, rape victim," and uh, I those were kind of key things for me as I kind of. Because I'm a really kind of deep guy, and I really think about things quite a bit, and I really think about Ripley quite a bit. And I posted uh, a question in the Wayland Utani Bulletin today. I'm sure you saw both of you about what Ripley, uh, what the character of Ripley, if it if it changed people's ideas of what strong women were. Um, really, some really really great responses. But uh, I figure that we now we have you here. We will talk about that and get your opinion too, Dayton. Um, yeah. But uh, I. I think I find the character of Ripley fascinating from day one. I mean, and I think she was consistently well-written from alien to alien three. Um, I think she had a really, really good run in her psychology and, you know, the idea that she was a whistleblower. Um, And most of the time, you know, in in these days when we see stories about whistleblowers, um, for instance, I don't know if you guys have seen uh, the documentary called going clear about Scientology. Um, But basically the guy who did the documentary, uh, is a target now of Scientology um, because he did that documentary. And I feel like Ripley is kind of the whistleblower of the company. She's someone that they can't keep a lid on, but they're trying to. Um, they're going so far to keep her quiet as to impregnate her uh, with an alien as, you know, to uh, kind of obviously against her will. Um, and I think she's a fascinating, fascinating character. And what's so fascinating to me about Ripley is that her gender becomes... Like, I don't even think of Ripley's gender a lot. I mean, I've been thinking about it this week because it's something that no one talks about because she's so well-written and well-acted. She's just a a solid character. It doesn't matter if she's a man or a woman. She's a solid character. And uh, I'm curious as to what you guys think uh, of of her character and how you respond to her. Well, I mean, to start, I I believe in the original script for... uh... Alien, the characters were written asexually so that they could be cast as either male or female, depending on who they could get. So there were different um, there were different iterations of the script where Ripley was Robley and she was the captain of the ship and she was actually a male in the script. And it's just there's all sorts of things. But um, I just love how Ripley is written and I, I love that she's a woman. It's awesome. I, uh, when I first started watching Alien, it never really occurred to me, you know, I, I was in much high school then when I first watched it. It wouldn't really start working on me about the character of Ripley until later. And when you mature a little bit, you start to, you know, notice, you know, the strength of the characters that are playing and not just, you know, who dies next, you know? Yeah. Um, I watch it today and I'll watch, watch her. They gave her, they give her a strong presence, a uh, very uh, lawful 
strict, you know, down the line type uh, ideology she has of how things should be run. She's got a lot of responsibility. You know that she's uh, technically inclined. She knows uh, how a ship runs. She knows how robotics work. I mean, you didn't see anybody else stick their head, their hands in the ashes, you know, body when they were repairing her. She knows how to do that. Yeah. So you gotta know that she's technically inclined on working in robotics. So she's gotta have a. They gave her a strong mind, but she does have a sensitivity about her that they always bring that woman sensitivity back that that really draws you to her. Yeah. And uh, especially the part, you know, in Alien, I can think of a couple parts, but. Her caring about Kane when Kane wakes up, when she's leaning in and asking him what she remembers, or you know, do you, what it was the last thing you remember, and stuff. Like, she's just so happy that she's the one that's the most bubbly there. You know, she's really excited. You know, this is going to work out. We're going to be all right. You know, type look about her. The other part when she confides in Dallas that she doesn't trust Ash. She just uh, she doesn't want to lose this control that that has she has a bad feeling about it there's a lot of you can tell that she's close to dallas you know they, they cut that whole there was a part that they were going to show that they have a love interest they cut that out part out. i don't even think they filmed it but there was supposed to be a, a love interest there you can still see it oh yeah scene. for sure that that there is a there's an attraction a in a more intimate feel that she's giving dallas while talking to him uh, and you don't even have to know the history to know that when you watch it, especially when he dies and her reaction. She just doesn't want to. She doesn't well, the body down. language speaks more oh, than yeah. anything. She that. doesn't break down until Dallas is dead. And then she, then you can tell that she's shaken. Uh, and she's really upset about the situation. She's, you know, aliens, you see the motherly. It, it, they, they give her a strong character throughout all three films, but they always get, draw her back to at to remind you this is a woman she's got something else the guys don't she's got a, a motherly instinct she's got a, a womanly instinct of, of being more sensitive to the people around her you're going to see it every once in a while come out and and that's good because you need to keep being reminded of that um she even said herself that a lot of people that wrote for her character didn't understand her. Yeah. Uh, that they would always say that she's like a, what a soccer coach do this, do that. Get the boy. You know, yeah. Yeah. So there was a, a softness about her and a vulnerability about her that every once in a while would come out and be seen, but she draw it back in pretty quick. It, and, it, and it, but it was just enough to make you be endeared to her. And I think both male and females can watch her and, uh, Take a lot of that. Take a lot away from her. And I don't. I don't know if there's, uh, there's been a uh, character that strong since. I mean, unless Sarah Connor, Sarah Connor from the first two Terminators, maybe uh, yeah. or something close. But she didn't even. I don't think Sarah Connor was even written in a way where Ripley was written where she really was believable because she rode that line between her character as a just a, a human genderless human and her character as a as a woman um yeah. where sarah connor was all like cold 
um, wasn't really a great mother, was really kind of, you know, whereas Ripley, she could become those things. She could become soft for Newt. At the, then she could become, you know, a badass in front of Burke. You know, um, she could really play those those differences. Just, I mean, and that's, of course, a testament to Sigourney Weaver, uh, who just embodied the, the role so, so well. Well, I think that the moment that I think that Ripley changed a, a bit for me in, in terms of the, the events that have taken place to a point where she just sort of became more cold yeah. and robotic was in Alien 3. Yeah. And it was the scene when she was going down to the morgue and the doctor turned to her and said, was she your daughter? And he, he just looks, she just looks at him with the coldest look and says, no, she wasn't. At that point, that to me, she, she just, she's just almost like giving up on, yeah. on trying to be that, that type of caring person, that type of person she was in the first two films. Yeah. You know, you see a little bit come back out in Alien 3, but she's more or less, especially when she's infected, she finds out she's going to die. It's more or less business as usual. Let's take care of this. Let's yeah. get this going, you know. Well, I think the death of Newt really... Uh, tore the last bit of whatever she was holding on to. It took it right from her. And then her yeah. being there for the autopsy and all that, it just really changed her. And, you know, she finds herself in a situation where she's running away from an alien and she's again, a whistleblower and no one believes her and the company's on their way and the company has yeah. other plans and uh, she's, she's tired and she's ready to give her life uh, because she's done with it. Um, yeah. But I, I just, I find the character of Ripley, um, fascinating in a way that I could discuss for a long, long time. Uh, just the fact that she wasn't, you know, just a whistleblower, uh, but she was also like a, a rescuer. She rescued people. She rescued the Marines. She rescued Newt. She rescued all these people. Um, and she kept her cool. And she wasn't yeah. like, you know, she wasn't written stereotypically where she bursts out crying. I mean, you know, for instance, uh, I, I talk about Shaw a little bit um, from Prometheus. I mean, there's really no comparison, but you just in terms of writing and how they're acted, you have these scenes with Shaw, which Shaw, I guess, is strong, but she's not that strong of a person. But then she bursts out crying because she, she says, oh, I can't have a baby because that's who she is. You know, like, it's just so inconsistent. Obviously, they're different yeah. characters, but uh, you can just see the difference between a well-written character who happens to be a woman and a poorly written character who is a woman. You know, yeah, yeah. Shaw to me is uh, is is. I love the actress that Lumi uh, Rapace. Yes, Rapace that played her. I, I love her as an actress, and I, I like the character Shaw. Uh, and she's not a Ripley, but I, I think I don't think they really intended her to be one. Yeah, Ripley. Yeah. Uh, I think what to me what killed her character was not her. It was. Uh, the gentleman that played her love interest. I can't even remember the guy's name. Um, he wasn't convincing to The me. bargain I, Tom I, Hardy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I did not enjoy that character at all. And uh, I think it drug Numi's character down at the beginning of the film and sort of, uh, you know, just... I lost, I lost uh, a, a little bit of love for her character because of him. I don't know why, but, uh, you know, 
there is no comparison between those two, and I don't think a really, I hope really didn't intend to try to recreate another Ripley. Uh, although there's a lot of mirrors in the film and Prometheus that shows that he tried, Yeah, you know, here or there. But, uh, you know, um, I salute him for trying to give another strong character to a female, which is, is good. It's, it's, it's necessary. But uh, I'm curious of what they're going to do with the second film. Uh, I don't know how in the world they're going to... Uh, bring uh her character to fruition i'm very curious about how that's going to happen yeah it'll be Um, it'll be interesting to be sure yeah yeah so so shaw is somebody that i like uh but it's it's i haven't gotten to see enough of the character to 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 uh ever compare it to a Ripley. I mean, it's that's, I don't think that it's well, you're, ever going to be intended. You're a better man than me. Cause that's I don't wrong. like Shaw oh, at sorry, all. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just saying, I don't like <laughs> Shaw at all. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, I was going to say that even though I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this, I do think that, um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character in the thing prequel, that is comparable to a Ripley, her character. You know, I haven't seen the thing prequel yet. I refuse to see it. I was sitting there going, I don't want to see that. I love the thing. Don't do it. But I heard it was a great thing. It was a great film. It's a very worthy prequel. I mean, essentially, it's the thing all over again. I mean, there's nothing new, I mean, in it. But it's they do a great job of connecting both films. Aside from the, I don't know why they went away from practical effects. They shouldn't have done that. But aside from that, I mean, it's a very well-made film. It also stars... uh, uh, Owen Lars, um, what's his name? Uh, oh, uh, Joe Edgerton. Fuck, the guy. Yeah, Joel Edgerton, who's awesome oh, in the role. Yeah, the guy from The Great Gatsby. Yeah, Owen yeah. Lars. yeah. I heard that they did it. They, the, the, uh, they did the scenes that later uh, McCready and them discover. They did those scenes very well with the bodies that are still in the, you know, oh, yeah. that are still yeah, at the camp, and they did up. a very good match. So, you know, I, I just haven't had a chance to watch it, but I need to. Yeah, I, really I mean, it's not like one of the best sci-fis ever. I mean, it's a decent it's a decent prequel for sure. Uh, and the CGI isn't bad. It's just obviously CGI. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly give it a watch. Um, Speaking oh, of great science fiction, though, I strongly recommend to you two and to everybody listening to go out, if you can, and see X Machina. As soon as possible. I'm seeing it Sunday. Perfect. Yeah, I'm seeing it tonight it. at 10 o'clock, my time. Awesome. So, uh, uh, I, we really appreciate you coming on, Dayton. I just have a, a last question for you. What is your favorite, if you can, or one of your favorite or, or memorable scenes from Alien? Um, let's see here. Because there's so many of them, I'm trying to think of the one thing that really gets me. Um, you know, it. it, it totally. You asked me a question. I don't think about it, but until now, let's see. Uh, I guess it's you know, Ash fascinates me. Yeah. Ash to me is is he? People ask me, is he evil? I don't think he's ever evil. Ash to me is a guy that. Was, is programmed to do a certain job. He's a science officer. He's programmed to be a science officer, but he was giving a directive to... Uh, have you ever seen 2010? 
Yes, of uh, course. The, 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 the second mm-hmm. sequel to 2001. You know when they Chandra Chandra goes in there and diagnoses Hal, and he says um, the reason why Hal malfunctioned, he became paranoid. Because you you directed him to do something that he is not allowed, he's not programmed to do, and that's to be dishonest. And he couldn't, he didn't know how to do it, so he killed the crew. I think sometimes Ash, it, the scene with Ash um, malfunctioning in the galley, and the milk coming down the side of his head, and then uh, attempting to kill Ripley or whatever he's wanting to do with Ripley. Uh, sometimes, you know, I know Ridley Scott has hinted that it's, uh, that he's re- recreating a sexual act that he can't perform himself. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, some creepy stuff like that. I think that that was the same thing, the same idea. He's malfunctioning because he wasn't supposed to, his directives were supposed to, you know, push this along in non in, in a mostly non-devious way, allow the alien to take over and kill off the crew. You know, don't fight back, guys. You know, let me just say that mother and me are looking into alternatives here. Yeah. Just trust me, okay? Yeah. You know, I'm getting frustrated. You're not listening to me. Stop going. Don't, you know, and that's why he followed her in the mother's wound. He didn't like uh, her going in there and finding out the directive. When he tried to soften the blow a little bit by trying to be kind, because that's what he's programmed to be. Yeah. And when she became violent towards him, he couldn't compute, couldn't figure it out. His directive was saying, you can't allow these people to leave the ship. You can't allow them to, to let this out of the bag, you know? And, uh, he malfunctioned in terms of trying to keep things quiet and in, in control. And, uh, He's a fascinating character in that whole scene right there. It's, you know, everybody talks about the chestburster. Of course, the chestburster is a horrible scene. There's no doubt. Um, the alien itself is a horror. I, 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 there's scenes that the alien it still scare me to this day. But that malfunctioning droid, no one saw that coming. Yeah. He just didn't. You know, he was an aggravated little guy that, you know, thought he was smarter than everybody else on the boat, you know, and, you know, he, didn't want to talk to anybody or he wanted to do his own thing but all of a sudden when this happened it was to me that was the most when when parker knocks his head off that to me is just one of the most that was one of my favorite scenes yeah i would agree i think that's my favorite scene because that right there was their last hope was his logic to help probably get him off this out of this situation we're finding out now that he's the core of the problem to begin with yeah and what's interesting about Ash's character, too, is they're already dealing with this alien presence, this creature that's on the ship that's terrifying them. They don't know what really to do. And then they find out there's another creature on the ship terrifying them. Right. Uh, yeah, some, someone yeah. that they thought was their own that's not just not their own, who's not just a bad guy. He's a, he's a robot, and no one knew. So they had these two presence, these two entities in this ship working against them. Um, yeah. And and ashes on the side of the creature, um, and yeah, that's that's pretty frightening. Where you know the the person or what you, what you thought was the person you were supposed to trust the most ends up being someone whose interest is in the creature that's on that ship. And one of the most funniest things that uh, some people don't notice about Alien uh, until you watch it enough times is that the first couple minutes of the film, 
really tells you straight up, but visually, that Ash is a robot. You just have to watch him wake up. Yeah. And if you ever, if you ever watch, look at, look at all of the sleeping, you know, they're tossed around inside the beds. Then you look at Ash. His hands are, straight, fingers are straight. His thumbs are perfectly aligned. He's laying straight prone in his bed. The biggest giveaway that there is something not right about this guy. This guy is. Oh my God! Here we go. Yeah, there's something very, <laughs> very strange about this dude. Uh, it wasn't until like the third or fourth time that I watched it that I said, "Oh, there, there's a big clue right there." Which was guy. what? That his hand, that his arm raised right up. It was that? It, no, it was literally when they when they first saw, saw show him sleeping. Okay. I don't know of any human being that sleeps their arms at their sides and their fingers completely straight and their palms, you know, to yeah. the side. You know, I have to check like, that out. Like a robot. Okay. Like a robot. I just noticed that when I, when I watched the film going back, and I said, boy, really early in the film does he give it away. He just tells you, unless you don't, you probably don't realize that because maybe somebody sleeps like that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But, uh... Everybody else was pretty much sleeping natural and had their arms draped over their chest or, you know, their legs up when they were waking up. And here he is, you know, like he just shut down for the night like a robot, you know. And uh, you have to think that he's gotten up a couple of times during during the trip to speak to Mother about the reprogramming of the ship to go to this planet and all that stuff. So, Well, it's kind of like uh, Samuel's in isolation. He's already woken up. By the time you get out of hypersleep, yeah, yeah, which is they make it so obvious at the beginning that he's a replicant and that he's an android. Yeah, they make it so they obvious sure do. they don't even hide it. Yeah, and you know it's it's ironic about we bring up alien isolation and ironic that we were you were talking about Jamie you're talking about Ripley being the whistleblower, and it's ironic that now with alien isolation Amanda is now the whistleblower. Yeah, yeah. Because you know she's going to be rescued in the next sequel, whatever they do. She can't be... She, she knows she knows Waylon knows that she knows. She's going to be alive and they're going to question... There's someone that's going to question her. She's going to be on the run or she's going to have to find somebody to protect because they're going to come after her and try to shut her up. Because she knows the truth now about what happened. I won't spoil it for anybody, but you know now she's become the whistleblower. She knows this creature exists. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a great story arc i think that that was brilliant you know she lives to be in her late what 70s i, th I believe in aliens she was died. Uh, 67 67 so late 60s so i uh, think that she lived pretty much her young life you know trying to find the truth and doing the same thing ripley did you know and who knows how she left her demise because they didn't really say how she died they said she passed at 67 years old. Yeah. I think they yeah. said cancer in the novel. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Alan Dean Foster's novel, supposedly something like that. There's so much oh. there for that character, too. I mean, if they ever want to explore that in a film, I mean, they've got all that time when Ripley, you know, Ellen Ripley is out adrift where they could, you know, like like they did in isolation, they could turn that into a, a, a bona fide film. Um, that would be pretty interesting. That was just what I was hoping for when they were getting ready to reboot the whole alien saga i was hoping they would probably go that direction because you know strike while the iron's hot yeah you know, it'd be a great film to start off with uh 
a new character with the name Ripley, but not be Sigourney. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You can create a whole when new universe of characters from there. When I um, well, interviewed Kesha Burroughs, who provided her likeness and ocean capture for Amanda Ripley in isolation, I uh, asked her if she would be interested in reprising her role. And if so, you know, what do you want to see happen? Um, she didn't really mention much, but she said she would love to reprise uh, her role as Ripley. So I think in the near future, we can expect something from Creative Assembly. She's a very sweet person. I've talked to her several times on um, Twitter and about the work that I was doing for her character and stuff. Uh, I'd love to see her play Ripley again. And this time have more of a, much more of just a, I would, I don't know. I, 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 they, they said they were going to have her do the speaking parts originally, you know, but, you know, I understand she's English and it just uh, probably wouldn't have worked. But, uh, you know, it, it Whatever. I just hope to see her again. I hope they they use her again for the next one. Be interesting. Well, we should probably wrap it up. It's yeah. been like an hour and fifteen minutes. Uh, I don't know. Oh, okay. Wow. Pete, if you had anything else that you wanted Solid to add. Solid hour. <laughs> um, but uh, Dayton, thank you so much. Uh, your work again. Your work is amazing. I pretty much follow every post that you make. Uh, I I just uh, I can't go on enough about uh, how. How awesome the stuff, the stuff that you do. Thank you for taking the time out of your night tonight to just talk to us, and uh, we'll uh, get this up as soon as we can. Awesome, man. I appreciate you guys having me. This is great. For sure. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Final report of the commercial Starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew, Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off. <laughs>